to Five Cats, Two Pussies. This is Ronnie. And this is Lindsay. And this is episode 45! Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, welcome. Thank you for listening. We have a great episode today. We are going to talk about Massachusetts cryptids. Yeah, dude. I'm excited, and this kicks off our sort of spooky theme, fall themed. Sometimes it'll be witchy, and sometimes it'll be monsters. Sometimes it'll be ghost stories, but it'll all be spectacular. Yeah. yeah. So excited. We had so much fun covering the Canadian cryptids over the summer. It was, this There's, was just. Yeah. It was waiting to happen. There's so many out there, and I learned a lot, and so I can't wait to share what I've learned with everyone. Same Z's. Before we get into that, though, I have a dog update. Ooh. So dog as in Django, because we don't talk about dogs, we talk about cats. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Django, our s- scaredy boy, shy guy, randomly came up on the couch with me the other day. No way, dude. All the way up. (laughs) So he was, I was curled up on the corner of the couch, Skyping with my mom, my mom, and uh, had my laptop like on my knees. So I was very walled off, but Kenway was on the opposite end of the couch on the back, um, taking a nap, minding his own business. And Django, the dog, was running around, losing his mind, meowing everywhere because he wanted to play with Kenway. Kenway would not come down. So instead, Django came up <laughs> and he looked very like trepidatiously sort of slinked onto the couch <laughs> and then sat there in a little loaf. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Did you get to pet him? No, Aww. no, no, no. I did not make any sudden movements. <laughs> I very cautiously peered above the edge of my laptop screen and then started whispering to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> But he stayed like stayed on the sort of couch platform where you put your butt for a few minutes, and then he put his little paws up on the back of the couch to try and like headbutt Kenway into playing with him. Kenway wasn't having any of it, so he eventually like got down, just sort of sat there for a few minutes, and was like, "What do I do here? <laughs> How did I get here?" Why is she looking at me? Oh, God, run away. (laughs) But he was up there for probably a total of, I don't know, four to five minutes. Wow. We were occupying the same space. Wow, that's amazing. I was very impressed. Slowly but surely, he's getting there. (laughs) I'm like, I get it. You know, he'll never be a cuddler, but I like that he's not absolutely horrified by our presence. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It seems like he's totally cool with letting you guys occupy his space. Sometimes a little more, a little more, more, like on his terms. Right, right, right. (laughs) I have a fan theory on on dog. Oh, go ahead. I feel (laughs) like in a previous life, dog was a delicious slice of pizza. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) He was so delicious that he got to come back as a cat in his next life. But now he's like, I can move around and stuff. So he's really just a sentient slice of pizza. (laughs) (laughs) That is so weird. (laughs) Now I want to eat pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like in a previous, if we're going to go previous life theory, that maybe Django was like a, I don't know, a British street urchin kid in like the 17 or 1800s. And he was always begging with his adorable large eyes and small little nose and, and mouth. For food and scraps, but always running away from the coppers. 
Ooh. And so he's, because those are the two things he does. And that's what he knows how to do. And he also likes to sleep <laughs> behind walls. So <laughs> that makes more sense than the sentient slice of pizza. <laughs> I disagree. I feel, Sorry, like, Dan. I feel like a street urchin kid, like that was a good kid. Went, I feel like if he went, became a Freddy cat, then he went backwards. And I feel like if you were good in a previous life, maybe you should go forward. <laughs> And on the your key th- thing there is, though, a previous life and a sentient slice of pizza. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like, it, it proves the wall theory. He, like, pizza comes in boxes, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm about to talk about cryptids, so I'm not going to poo-poo a sentient slice of pizza. <laughs> I'm now probably going to call him, like, Roni on occasion. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> So that was that was one of the highlights of my week was dog being up on the couch. <laughs> Lindsay, how was your week? My week was good. It was, you know, same as usual. I started watching a couple of weeks ago Game of Thrones mm. because I didn't do that when everybody else did it. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, no, but I'm doing it now and I am obsessed with yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like uh, the last time I asked you how things were going... You were in like season two, and then I was like, "Oh, so trying to like not spoil it for you." And I'm like, "Did this happen? What did you think of?" And, and you're like, "Oh yeah, whatever. That was like four seasons ago." And I'm like, "Holy shit, girl!" Yeah, I think that I'm at the start of season seven now. Oh my god. Yeah. So Cersei just blew everything up, like the bitch that she is, and uh, uh, Jon Snow is king in the north now. Nice. Yeah. Favorite character so far? I'm an Arya Stark gal, nice. man. Yeah. Nice. I really like her. I like Tyrion Lannister a lot, too. I didn't at first, but he, 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 grows he on quickly you. grew yeah. on me. Yeah. Um, I like Daenerys, even though she feels a little smug to me. Yeah. Although now I think she's starting to come out of that a little. Uh, yeah. A little bit. Y- yeah. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she has a giant fleet of ships now, and she's she sure heading does. towards <laughs> Westeros. I'm very excited. You have a, a, a any sort of sleeper favorites where it was like, uh, where you're sort of like wondering, like, oh, well, they're they're on your like watch list, where you're like, mm, they could be really cool, but I haven't decided yet. Pretty much everybody else is on my <laughs> watch list. Like pretty mo- like Jon Snow originally was on my watch list. I thought he was just kind of like mopey and whiny and annoying. I start I still think he's mopey and it bothers me, but he I'm starting to like him a little bit more. Uh Jamie Lannister hated him. Hated him for like several seasons. He's starting to grow on me a little bit. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for you to finish probably this week by you probably. by the pace that they, you're going, <laughs> uh, so that I can get like a I don't know a full recap of Game of Thrones <laughs> and like as told by Lindsay. <laughs> 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 All right. You know what we need to do, dude. I do know what we need to do. I almost forgot. <laughs> you know how I remembered because we're we're good podcasters. We have show notes, and I wrote sunflowers on my show notes as a reminder for the candle. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> so we are going to light our ritual candle. <laughs> the plan was to hold it in my hand like I did last week, and then I was holding my notebook in my hand instead, and not the candle. 
Well, what I wanted to say in regards to the sunflowers as it relates to the ritual candle is (laughs) (laughs) it's a great it was a great trigger word for me. Um, Is that we are still working on our summer solstice candle. So um, we are on the tail end. It's burnt beautifully. This the second one, the sort of crystal shaped one. And we will probably be done in an episode or two with this particular candle. We do have, I'm so excited, our next fall ritual candle all lined up from Some this time on Etsy. But uh, it kind of felt like, you know, even though we've got the fall candle ready to go, it felt right to continue to burn the summer one because it's like 77 and it is sunny and we are... Still recording outside with the rustling leaves and the cicadas and maybe a hawk swoop. Hopefully a hawk swoop. <laughs> but I, uh, but in addition, I had planted sunflower seeds at the beginning of way back in like March, and the last three finally opened. And they're just little busy bee brand type uh, sunflowers, so they're not the big mammoth ones. But I really didn't think they were going to open. And today I walked out on the porch, and there they are in their late summer glory. And they're beautiful. Yeah, I see four out there now, and it looks like there is a fifth kind of wanting to. Yeah, there's one more that maybe tomorrow or Tuesday will probably open. Uh, But that'll be the last of them. And, And I'm thankful that... They made it, and they're hanging on as sort of this, like, beacon of the last dog days of summer, and I love it. So we're going to keep burning the summer ritual candle because of that. Yeah, man, totally. Sweet. Well, we'll, uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come right on back to talk all about Massachusetts cryptids with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon, witches. We are ready to talk about Massachusetts cryptids. Yeah, dude. And we are going to start with the Demon of Dover. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my best wrestling entrance in like voice. <laughs> so I think right off the bat, I want to put a little disclaimer, a little asterisk on this one where... The Demon of Dover is a very, very popular cryptid for uh, for a variety of reasons, but it is very unlike most cryptids. I'm not even sure that I would 100% call it a cryptid, but we'll tell you the tale, and then we can discuss and decide for yourself. Yeah, dude. Totally. Totally. So, it was April 21st. 1977. At approximately 10.30 p.m., Bill Bartlett was driving down Farm Street with two of his friends. As he's driving, Bill notices a creature climbing over a stone wall on the left side of the street. He described this creature as peach-colored with a large egg-shaped or melon-shaped head a body reminiscent of a baby's body with long arms and legs, and its eyes were glowing orange. I particularly liked the fact that its skin was wet 
like sandpaper. Yeah. He also described it as sort of like shark-like in texture. Very strange. He dropped his two friends off at home and immediately went home to draw the creature. And then I think he showed it to the cops or something like that. Was like, I saw this thing. I don't know. He did. He showed it to his parents. Oh. And. They showed it to the cops? And then eventually. But that's not where the story ends on that night. It's not. A couple hours later, around 12.30 a.m., John Baxter, 15-year-old dude, was walking home from his girlfriend's house. He was nearing the intersection of Miller Hill Road and Farm Street and noticed something about 150 feet away walking towards him. Once that thing, being, creature, got to about 15 feet away, they both stopped and they looked at each other. John thought it was a boy that he went to school with, with the name M.G. Bouchard, because M.G. was born with a deformity in his head. So we thought it kind of looked like him. So we called out to him, M.G., is that you? No answer. Spooky. Yeah. So he waited for a minute and was like, who is that there? And as he starts to take another step forward, this creature dashes into the woods. John, being the smart 15-year-old that he is, decides to follow it. Chases it down a ditch, up a slope, and into a field. Yeah. Where he sees it outlined in the moonlight. And then nothing happens. They just kind of, like, look at each other. (laughs) (laughs) But he describes it later as having a figure-eight-shaped head with glowing orange eyes, long fingers, and feet that clung and wrapped around the stone it was standing on. He got scared, and he left before it did. Yeah. He ran back up the embankment and found a ride home on Farm Street. The next night, April 22nd, 1977, Will Taintor, an 18-year-old fellow, was driving his girlfriend, Abby Brabham, who was 15, home from a night out of doing whatever they were doing. It was midnight, so they had a good time. Sounds like they had a good time. That's a good night for a (laughs) 15-year-old man. On Springdale Avenue, Abby sees something at the end of the bridge on the left-hand side of the road. She sees a tan, hairless body with a watermelon-shaped head. A relatively featureless face, aside from its glowing green eyes. About the size of a goat. Only saw it for a, a, a quick second before they passed it. And that was the last sighting of the Dover Demon. Three people, two nights, 24-hour time span, all of them within a mile of each other on this, along this sort of farm road. Now, the investigation picks up when, as you said, Bill Bartlett runs home, draws a sketch. When John Baxter gets home, he also draws a sketch. Now, this is a small town. It's 1977. People are not tweeting what they're seeing on a regular basis. So it took five days for the two teens to sort of talk to each other. And when John Baxter heard of Bill Bartlett's story, 
He demanded to see the sketch. They looked identical. So weird. The only discrepancy in descriptions was between the boys and Abby. Abby saying the creature had green eyes and the boys both confirming it had orange. I have to wonder if it was just the headlights, like, catching the eyes and then, like, giving them a different sort of glint of color. Absolutely. So reflective eye flashes is something that only animals have. Uh, humans don't get that. There's, our eyes are different. But lots of different types of animals will get that flash, and it can show as orange or green on the same animal. Ooh, depending interesting. Depending on how the light hits it, whether it's a direct light or sort of like angled light. You know what is strange, though, is that John Baxter wasn't driving in a car. Ooh. He was walking down the street. Fair. But sometimes if you look out, maybe while you're camping or in the backyard here at Big Red... And on a dark night, you'll see the flash of orange eyes that are raccoons. Ooh, you're totally right about that. I also want to throw my hat into, because I think that cryptozoology should be greeted with a healthy amount of skepticism. April happens to be a convenient time of year to shear a sheep or a goat or to trim back their, their, their coats. And so the... Uh, goat size. It could have been something just as simple as like a sheep with like something like wrapped around its head. Yeah, it could have been a sheep walking around on two feet. That could explain like the uh, the. <laughs> <skin> <laughs> well, they rear up. They rear up. Yeah, but they don't like run into the woods on two feet. <laughs> and both boys I'm described you, the creature as having long fingers and long toes. That wrapped around and gripped whatever it was touching. Uh, it leaned against a tree and wrapped its fingers around the trunk of the tree. And, and upon later investigation, this was an eight-inch thick tree. I think the boys, much like when we scare kids that uh, in trick-or-treaters, I think they had a healthy amount of their brain filling in input based on their fear versus what they actually saw. Possibly. The investigation sort of heats up when a one Lauren Coleman, who is a uh, sociology psychology student doing a work study at a boys' school nearby, heard about this and decided to investigate. Uh, somebody who is interested in the supernatural, the paranormal, and in particular cryptozoology. And that's where the investigation really starts before it was even taken to the police lauren was able to interview not only the boys and their parents but also gathered references from folks around town teachers police officers just to sort of understand the i suppose the nature of the kids and they were they were average normal teenagers and that seemed to be the general description given by everyone and what was most interesting is that aside from, I believe, John Baxter's father, who said, yeah, it was just an animal, and my boy got scared, with no shame, just he didn't believe that it was a supernatural or cryptid creature, everyone else, all of the other parents said that they believed their child, that their child would not lie to them, and therefore there must be something strange in the woods. Yeah, I mean, I would believe the kids, too. It's just a little too convenient that three uh, separate 
groups of teenagers saw it and like hadn't heard the other stories. Absolutely. And so the police did investigate. They found no tracks, no trace, no nothing. And Lauren Coleman also pulled in several friends, um, various UFO experts, because it felt a little bit more like perhaps a paranormal or supernatural uh, activity than a cryptid. Because this is the first and only experience that anybody has had with this particular creature. And of note as well, the newspapers are often credited as having coined the term the, the demon from Dover or the Dover demon. And apparently the name came from Lauren Coleman himself. That was his working case file name. Now, Lauren Coleman says that's where it comes from. (laughs) 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 So it doesn't really matter. But (laughs) this, I I sort of go back to this isn't 100% a cryptid because most cryptids are seen on a semi-regular basis. There's frequent viewings enough to believe that there is a species of creature that has yet to be discovered. That is the point of a cryptid. So pandas were once a cryptid. Gorillas were once a cryptid until we like discovered where they live and tracked them down and researched them. And that's the idea behind things like Bigfoot, where, you know, it's not just a Sasquatch. It's that Sasquatch exists. Sasquatches? Sasquatch? <laughs> they, that they exist. And this is a singular event. So it makes it feel a little bit more almost like a, a paranormal or, or spooky activity than a cryptid. But it falls into the cryptid category because it is animal-like. Yeah. I, I agree. It definitely feels a little more like alien to right. me. Right. And that's what they thought as well. And so the local alien r- experts from various organizations, including MUFON, which is a fairly popular one still, uh, did some investigating of their own. It has not at that point nor at any point since matched any descriptions of alien, uh, what they call little folk um, it, or UF, what do they call them? UF fall, UF phonauts or something like that. Oh. UFO astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> UFO nuts. Um, but it doesn't match the description of anything else on record in any of their organizations or societies. And there were no other paranormal activities, no UFO sightings, nothing like that in the area. And that tends to. Um, precede a an alien sighting that there's also you know in the area some UFO activity. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, very good point. So then the question comes: Where does this come from? If it's is is it a cryptid? Is it a baby sheep that's been sheared <laughs> and walks <laughs> around on two legs? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very popular theory that it was a baby moose. Uh, that is the most recent sort of debunking, and uh, it is. I show. I will put on note that uh, Lauren Coleman, our our Dover demon expert in this one, was very quick and and a little snarky to uh, <laughs> to refute that one. <laughs> was very much. Uh, I've seen fifty five moose, and no moose looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, all right, fair enough. (laughs) 
but I did read that there was um, some some ideas that were really interesting. And I also listened to uh, another podcast this morning on the Dover Demon because there are a lot of things written about the Dover Demon, but almost all of them are written by or co-authored or approved by Lauren Coleman, which is fine and great, but I was hoping for another sort of point of perspective or a uh, you know another reference point. So uh, this other podcast called Kryptonauts, uh, they had some also like just some personal interesting ideas. Aside from a baby moose or a baby foal or a sheared sheep, uh, alien, they pontificated that maybe it was like a locust. It was a hibernating creature where they burrow, like locusts, I think, burrow into the ground and only come out like every 17 years or something like that. Are they that big? No, no, not not actually a locust, but that they hibernate oh. like a locust. So this was the, maybe they have a really weird hibernation cycle. And this is the only time it's been seen, but, you know, in another hundred years, somebody will see it again. Whoa. Like that flower that smells like farts that only, like, <laughs> opens up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Once every hundred years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, another popular idea is Dover is no stranger to to spooky occurrences. And there is a well-documented uh, story for another time, but uh, back in the late 1800s, uh, there was a gentleman who was walking along Farm Road past a particular rock, and upon that rock sat Satan himself. Whoa. And so they thought maybe Satan had patrolled the area again and lost his pet. <laughs> <laughs> and that the Dover demon was Satan, like Satan's dog. <laughs> and I thought that was too cute. That is pretty cute. <laughs> um, but the one that I really liked is that there is a particular, along this um, drive as well, there is a particular large rock called the Puka Stone. They call it the Polka Stone, like P-O-L-K-A, which apparently upon <laughs> some very minor research, it was just a like misspelling. Like somewhere along the way, people were like, oh, okay. oh with an accent, you pronounced it Polka. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the song and dance. Uh, it is actually meant to be the Puka Stone. And Puka is a word that is spelled hundreds of different ways in many different languages and cultures, especially in... Uh, in Europe, uh, with the British Isles, as well as North Norse mythology, Polish mythology, and they are essentially variations on goblins, fey folk, fairies, and a puka stone is said to be a portal to the fey world. And this particular stone in Dover is also rumored to be the site of many buried treasures, and although no treasure has ever been found there, Quite often, the dirt around the stone is very disturbed for no reason. Like, it would have been dug up and put back in place. Whoa. And so, the thought might be that this isn't a demon. This isn't a cryptid. Maybe it's a fey creature that came through the Puka Stone portal. It was only seen that once. Got really freaked the fuck out and left and never came back. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool. I love that theory. But yeah, so that's 
that's the the demon of Dover. It's been made into a video game character. Apparently, it's very popular in Japan for some reason, and it's it's probably more popular and more famous, honestly, than it has any right to be. Probably. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> it was seen a few times by three people. It was really freaky that it was seen over like by different people that described it the same way over the course of a couple of nights in like different areas, but the same sort of area. But honestly, my two cents is I think it's more popular because Lauren Coleman was there, researched it, named it, and we may know this name because Lauren Coleman is the founder and owner of the Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Ah! <laughs> Dude, I thought that name sounded familiar. <laughs> they are one of the foremost experts on cryptids, especially on the eastern uh, coast of the United States. Cool. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah. So I am not shitting on Lauren Coleman in any way. We've been to the uh, Cryptozoology Museum in Portland. It was a lot of fun. And a lot of the references for today's episode come from his book, uh, Monsters of Massachusetts. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he's written like 60 some like plus articles, books, excerpts, like interviews that are all about... Um, that, that are all about the Dover Demon. So if somebody famous continues to talk about it, it's going to stay famous. <laughs> <laughs> I still think it's very convenient that all these kids were, like, school-aged, and they're the only people that saw it. Like, maybe they got together, and this is, like, an elaborate, yeah, like... absolutely. That was a very popular um, thought. It would have been great if some, like, old, drunk farm guy had also... <laughs> could, we could also throw him into the mix. But we've just got a bunch of, like, teenagers, also teenagers, that are inclined to be out at all uh, hours think, of the evening in April. Absolutely. I think the other point of note here is that the teenagers were different ages, did not run in the same friend circle. And that was questioned. And their, I suppose, their personal references all agreed that these aren't the kind of kids that would make something up. But who fucking knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I believe them either yeah. way. Uh, and to this day, both John Baxter and um, Mr. Bartlett still, like, they still talk about it a little. They don't talk about it a lot, but they have been interviewed since then and, and very recently um, within the last three years. And there's... Their sort of separate story or thoughts are that they both wish it never happened. They didn't really enjoy their 15 minutes of fame. And in particular, Mr. Uh, was it Will Bartlett? Bill, Bill Bartlett. Bill, Bill Bartlett. <laughs> Bill, William, whatever. <laughs> Mr. Bill Bartlett is uh, actually now a very famous artist. Yeah, he's like a fine arts painter mm -hmm. or something, right? So he doesn't really want his name associated with being the person that also discovered the the Demon of Dover. But in the most recent little article that I could find from 2017, he basically said, listen, I wish this never happened. I don't really want my name associated with it. I didn't enjoy my 15 minutes of fame. But more than anything, I wish somebody else had have seen it since then so that people would stop thinking that I made it up. Right, right. So... He's he's removed himself from that story and circle, but still maintains that he saw what he saw. Bill, I believe you. The demon of Dover. Dover demon. <laughs> that was a fun story. That was really good. <laughs> that was really good. So sweet. All right, Lindsay. 
You got another one for us. I do have another one. Let's take a little break before we get into the next one. All right. We'll be right back. Yeah. We'll see you soon, witches. Welcome back. (laughs) 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 All right. Lindsay. I know you've got a really cool one for us. Yes. That I don't know anything about. So I, I'm really excited. I really like this one. I've, I've really liked it since I first heard about it, which was several years ago. Cool. But I never really did a deep dive into like reading about them and learning about them until we decided to do this episode. So it was really, really fun to do some research on them. So we're going to talk about Pukwudgies. Pukwudgies. Oh, I just want to pinch their cheeks already. <laughs> they're so cute. So they're like of of legend in Native tribes, Native American, also um, uh, First Nations in Canada a little bit. But they the legends sort of start out here in Massachusetts from the Wampanoag tribe. Some people say Wampanoag. I'm going to say Wampanoag because it just rolls off my tongue a little better. And I'll be addressing them probably several times throughout this. Is that a main tribe? No, Massachusetts. Are you sure? Yes. Oh. I just we, we studied them in, in Maine as like one of our native tribes, and they, we pronounced it Wapanyagi. Oh. That does not roll off the tongue. No, it <laughs> no, it doesn't. I actually, I looked up pronunciation today, and I like looked through a whole bunch of stuff, and yeah. and what I saw was usually it's it's one of two, and it's Wampanoag or Wampanoag, Wampanoag. or at least what they're saying now. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm listening. So could be the same, could be different. It could, I mean, the the tribe could have extended up into Maine too, for all I know. But anyway, these guys, they're about. Two to three feet tall. They have enlarged ears and like noses that are really long, kind of like a dog snout, okay. and really long fingers and toes. Uh, kind of troll-like. Okay, is how pe- is how people <laughs> describe them. They have spines like a porcupine, sort of <gasps> as like hair, and that go down their back. And they have gray grayish skin. Wow. Wow, that's a real looker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, th- I think they sound so cute. <laughs> they sound like a Dungeons and Dragons monster. <laughs> they do. I know. I love them. I actually hope that I get to see one someday. We'll see. Uh, they're said to to be able to appear and disappear at will. They can attack people and lure them to their deaths. I hear that they're really big fans of pushing people off of cliffs, <gasps> which is not the nicest, but... <laughs> not really. Um, they can use magic. They can conjure fire at will. They have and they use poison arrows, which is kind of scary. And they control, I don't really know how to say this, so I'm just going to do the best that I can. Uh, Te Pai Wankas, which are the souls of Native Americans that they have killed. Also oh, known in other cultures as like ghost lights or orbs or will o' the wisps. They're those like, they appear as those like lights that you see kind of floating around. They're also said to be able to take on other shapes. So, porcupine being the, the, the one that most people say they'll like hunch over, they'll walk around on all fours, um, and they, they, they'll take on the shape of a porcupine, even though they generally walk on two feet erect. But they're also said to take, be able to take on the shape of a cougar. 
Okay. <laughs> that's that's vastly different than a porcupine. It is. Yeah, no, it totally but, is. But they do have snouts and that I don't Yeah, sure. But they don't have like spines. <laughs> or like spindly spines like a porcupine. No. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't always so mean. Well, now I need to know what made them mean. I know. <laughs> So it all began with Moshup, who in Wampanoag legend was a giant who created the land that they lived on, a god who was also very large. And the land that they lived on is was like basically Cape Cod. Oh, okay. Yeah. Moshup loved the people, and the people loved Moshup. And the Pukwudgies saw this, like, tender relationship, and they started to feel a little jealous and a little left out. So they started trying to do nice things for people to help them out. Anytime that they felt like the people needed aid in something, they would be like, cool, I've got you. But... (laughs) their kindness would usually backfire and almost always resulted in like chaos and destruction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining them being like, Oh, I'll help you make dinner. And then they burn your house down. (laughs) Yeah. Right. They like, they would try it so hard, but they could never get it right. So after a while, they the Pukwudgies realized that they would never be as beloved as Mashup, and they became more mischievous and more malevolent, and they would play tricks on people and even try to scare them, like, I guess to get their attention. Just be like, hey, we're here too, you know. Fair. Pay attention to yeah, us. Yeah, it sounds like they're kind of like bullies. I mean, yeah, kind of. Kind of, Yeah. They didn't start off that way, but they, they felt like they had to resort to, to bullying. Yeah. So the Wampanoag got super annoyed with the Pukwudgie's antics, and they went to talk to Moshup's wife, Granny Squanit. Yes! <laughs> I want to go talk to Granny Squanit. Who doesn't want to talk to Granny Squanit? So they go to Granny Squanit, and they're like, can you help us out with this? These dudes are like... They're messing our stuff up. They're, like, screwing everything up. So Granny Squanit told Moshup to take care of the problem. So what Moshup does... Now, Moshup is kind of lazy. He gathered as many of the Pukwudgies as he could in his very large arms. And he flung them as far as he could. Oh, my God! <laughs> yeah. Some were flung as far north as Canada. Some were flung as far south as Delaware. Some were flung as far west as the Great Lakes. And Moshup thought that if he spread them all out enough that there wouldn't be so many of them at a time that they would disturb the people anymore. So after this, Moshup and Granny Squanit decide to take a little vacation. They're like, cool, we took care of the problem. We're going to take a break. <laughs> so the Pukwudgies, the Pukwudgies, they landed wherever they land, and they got all pissed off. They're like, what the Puck? Puck, no. And a bunch of them came back to Massachusetts. They were like, oh, no, we're going back home. So they get back home, and they start elevating their attacks. And at this point, they're like stealing children from their homes, and they're burning villages, and they're like doing all of this stuff. 
And Masha heard about it, but he wasn't ready to come back from vacation. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I know that feeling. (laughs) Right? He's like, come on, you guys. So Masha has five sons, and he tells his five sons, you guys go and take care of this. The five sons were no match for the Pukwudgies. They were all killed. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. It was like the Pukwudgies were like, uh, no. They they stopped fucking around. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're like, the Pukwudgies are pissed at this point. So they killed the five sons. And then uh, Mashup and Granny Squanet were super pissed that they killed all their sons. So they came back and they hunted and killed as many Pukwudgies as they could. But many of the Pukwudgies were able to, like, flee and, and, like, go into the forests and, you know, wherever. Wherever it was that they went. Some say that Mashup was overwhelmed by the Pukwudgies and was killed. But nobody knows for sure because it's, it's not recorded in legend. And after this story takes place, there's no real occurrence of Mashup in any more of the uh, Wampanoag lore. Wow. Yeah. He just disappears? Yeah, he just kind of s- stops being talked about. Holy shit. Well, something happened. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. There are still Pukwudgies seen today. Like current 20th century yeah. sightings. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them are seen in... Uh, the Bridgewater Triangle area is this area of Massachusetts <laughs> that we call the Bridgewater Triangle. And there's like weird stuff happens there. There's like weird sightings, UFO, Bigfoot, weird lights, strange sounds, stuff like that. So a lot of them are seen in this area. And a, a bunch of that area is this Freetown Fall River State Forest. And that is close to Cape Cod, correct? Close, yeah. yeah. But it's not it's Cape. Not on, it's yeah. not on the Cape, no. It's, it's, it's kind of like south but more towards Rhode Island but definitely not on the Cape one occurrence there was and this is probably one that's the most talked about I guess there's this lady named Joan who's like walking with her dog in the forest and her dog starts running away from her so she's chasing the dog and all of a sudden the dog stops so she stops and she's she catches her breath and she's and she looks up and she sees this creature standing there and she just she's describing this Pukwudgie. So she they just like kind of stood there and stared at each other. And then her dog started dragging her back towards the trail. So she goes back to the trail and she's a little shaken up, but she doesn't really, you know, think much about it afterwards. Later that night, she's awoken in the middle of the night in her bedroom. And she looks out her window, and there's a Pukwudgie standing outside of it. Oh no. Staring in at her. Dude. <laughs> it stares and then it walks away. Oh yeah, no, fuck that. <laughs> and this kept happening like over the next several weeks. She would be awoken in the middle of the night and look out her window and a puckwudgie would be standing there just looking at her. That's th- that's both wrong and creepy. <laughs> I know, right? So it's weird. It's almost like it almost feels like, you know, the Pukwudgie is acknowledging that you're there, but it still wants your attention. Like, it still right. wants the attention from the people that they wanted so long ago. That's really, that's, yeah, really cool, really creepy. Uh, that's a great cryptid. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. Longfellow wrote a poem 
not not really about them, and it's a very long poem. It's called <laughs> "The Song of Hiawatha." Oh, I I am familiar with this oh, very long poem. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we. This was um, a total tangent, but uh, it's one of my father's favorite poems. <gasps> no kidding. Yeah, yeah. It's an epic poem. There are chapters in it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the chapters is about the Pukwudgies. Oh, cool! I've yeah. read I read the whole thing in high school. But I don't particularly remember anything about it uh, other than it's my father's favorite poem, which is the reason I read it. But that's really cool. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. There was another occurrence that I read about in Framingham, which is more north of even Freetown. It's more like Metro West for us here, like in the Boston area, I guess Framingham is. So this guy, he was like, I think he was in a parking lot like sort of near a forest's edge and he saw something like standing at the edge of the forest and he was like whoa that's really weird and but he like he you know he gets in his car he drives away a couple weeks later he's sitting in his car in a parking lot close to where he was before and he's waiting for a friend and he sees it again I kind of want, I, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> I kind of want to see a Pukwudgie. <laughs> I do too. But they're like, they'll still play tricks. They'll still be mean. They'll still make, you know, like, they'll still control spirits and make orbs appear. And they'll like, they'll do it so that you can't see them, but you can see these ghost lights, spirit lights, whatever. And people will follow them. And then that's when they, you know, like push you off a cliff. Oh, my God. <laughs> or, like, lure you into the woods so that you get lost. Uh, people say that they also like to throw sands in, sand in your eyes. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These little pricks. <laughs> they kind of are. So, like, as much as they want to be seen and as, and as much as it feels like they want to be acknowledged, they're, like, still jerks. That's, this is a good one. I, I am a fan of the Pukwudgie. <laughs> I am, too. I just love them so much. <laughs> I like the I like cryptids with a, a rich, interesting, most often uh, indigenous like background uh, because I like something ha like that having really deep roots. I don't know. For me, it's just much more interesting. But yeah, that's a cool and scary monster. Yeah, and like Algonquin tribes will have tales of the Pukwudgie. Uh, tribes over by the Great Lakes will have tales of the Pukwudgie. There's, there's really, there's lore about them all, all over the place. But from what I gather, it kind of starts here. That's awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you for that tale. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have one more cryptid for you. Yeah. We'll come right on back to tell you all about it. So psyched. See you soon, witches. Okay, <laughs> we've got one more cryptid for you. Yeah. And this is not our last cryptid ever, but for today, we've got a little bit of a history lesson first, because I didn't know this, and I think you need to know this, because this is the cryptids of Massachusetts, and somebody is going to say, um, 
Maine is not Massachusetts, which was probably me <laughs> up until I did the research for this particular cryptid. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned this week that fairly recently Maine became Maine, and all things considered. So before Maine became its own state, it wasn't like the territory or region of Maine. It was Massachusetts. Oh. I had no idea. Damn. Uh, and so Massachusetts was a very large area that was sort of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts encompassed also many of these New England states. And uh, even growing up, my grandmother would refer to New England as the Boston states oh. because it was the Massachusetts states. It was all of these areas that we now think of New England, a lot of them were all considered Massachusetts. So when you actually go online and Google like haunted hikes in Massachusetts, seven of them on the most popular responses are in Maine. And I'm like, the fuck? I was looking for something in Massachusetts. And that's why. Because it wasn't until, I believe, the late 1800s or whenever, I can't remember exactly when Maine became Maine and separated fully. But a lot of these hauntings, cryptid sightings, and things like that date back to a time period when Maine was Massachusetts. And so therefore the haunting, the sighting, the cryptid, the whatever is considered part of Massachusetts as far as folklore goes. Oh, so, that's so I that's yeah. super cool. <laughs> so Maine became a state, by the way, in eighteen twenty. Ah, thank you. That's oh. where engineer, the state that engineer Dan is from. The state soda is Moxie, and the state bird, <laughs> state bird's a chickadee. Chickadees. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so the last cryptid for today does come from Maine, formerly Massachusetts, but is also seen in Massachusetts now. Ooh. And it is none other than the Specter Moose. <gasps> Specter Moose, I love you. <laughs> so sometimes known as the ghost moose, uh, but most commonly referred to as a specter moose. Specter Moose is a very large moose that has been spotted first in northern Maine, and it is all white. Now, the big difference here is people are going to be like, oh, an albino moose. Who really cares about an albino? An albino moose is not a cryptid. We know they exist. Almost all species of mammals have at some point had an albino version. It's, it's a mutation that happens. What's different about the specter moose is first the coloring. So it has white or silver hair. But brown eyes, very specifically brown eyes. And then most albino creatures have either a, like sort of a translucent blue or pink eye. Oh, interesting. Like okay. Think of uh, like yeah. albino bunnies. Kind yeah, of yeah. You're totally right. Yes. And the second is the size. And this really fooled me at first. So Spectre Moose is 2,500 pounds. Wow. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, moose are giant creatures. Of course. They're like, they crumple cars. But upon further reading and research, that is extremely large for a moose. Like a normal moose can stand six feet high. This is like a 15 foot high moose. Holy shit. So is this like elephant size moose? I don't know how tall elephants are, but either. that's what it makes me think of. <laughs> 
it it is a gigantic moose. Wow. And I will go through a little bit of the history of the sightings, but you can sort of see where some of these like, oh yeah, no shit. Yeah, Spectre Moose, got it, uh, comes from. So very most, uh, I guess very popular, most commonly referred to is in 1891, uh, a gentleman named Clarence Duffy is the first person who is most often accredited with seeing the Spectre Moose. However, that's not true. Uh, He is the first person that it made like a bigger newspaper. Oh, okay. But before that, um, a couple of years before, two brothers, Joe and Charlie Francis, were in the northern uh, woods of Maine near Lobster Lake, which, if you want to check it out on a map, is closer to Quebec City than it is to Boston or Somerville, where we are. (laughs) Uh, It is... The mainest main part of Maine. Like it is <laughs> like in the northern part, in the middle of nowhere, the northern woods of Maine are a very large area, but there is Lobster Lake, sometimes referred to as the Lobster Lake Moose. But they were hunting, all, all three of these guys, in their own separate respective um, incur- uh, encounters, where essentially they were hunting for moose. And they came across a large, abnormally large, white moose and their the first encounters were saying that it was roughly 2500 pounds uh one of the brothers counted it as having 22 points on a 12 foot rack so that's 22 points per antler uh, and most moose have a six to eight foot rack with eight to 12 points And And, and and to answer a question earlier the average elephant is 10 feet tall Oh, this oh, is bigger wow. than an elephant. <laughs> Shit. Wow. You know, the bigger the moose, the bigger the smoochable lips are. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these encounters go very much the same. Somebody goes hunting for moose, sees a gigantic white moose, shoots said moose six or seven or more times. The moose looks at them and walks away. Good. I've got to throw up my middle fingers at these guys <laughs> for wanting to murder this, like, you know, rare, giant, white moose. I mean, you have to think, late 1800s, <laughs> most of these guys aren't, like, a lot of the, so a lot of these encounters that are um, talked most often about are put in the paper, including, like, the New York Times had an article because somebody prominent and rich, essentially, from New York, went hunting in northern Maine where they had their camp and they encountered the specter moose and they were like, I shot it five times in the shoulder and it didn't even bleed and it didn't blink and it just walked away. And so that's how it really starts to become a legend. Is not just it's an old, like, camp hunting tale. It's that it makes big, like, not international newspapers, but it makes, like, big news. It makes headlines. It was on, like, the third page of the New York Times that... For that particular article, which was a big deal at the time. And the sightings continue. So the first recorded one in a newspaper is 1891. But it was seen again in, and I wrote down some of the dates to give you an idea of like sort of the time span and the frequency. But this is clearly not all of them. Because every article that I read, every book that I like dug into had more and more dates that were recorded. So... It was seen again in 1892, and 
1999. Wow. So it spans a large uh, a large date range and fairly frequent with some noticeable noticeable gaps. So 1917 to like and then it wasn't like talked about it really again until like the 1930s and then after that it just sort of like disappeared. Not entirely, but people stopped seeing it on their hunting trips. But again, all of these different sightings. Dude goes out in the woods, goes hunting. It's like, I totally saw a giant white moose. Bang, bang, bang. Missed it. Like, or, <laughs> or more commonly, I totally hit it. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Now, are all of these sightings sort of around the same area, around Lobster Lake? Yes. So all of those sightings up to 1938 are all around, the ones that I saw were all around Lobster Lake. Oh, Or okay. in the northern woods of Maine. Okay. So that's a big area. Uh, yeah. But it's a very popular hunting area. And I think it's worth noting as well that when these start in the late, eight, late 1800s, the moose in that area that were recorded, the ones that were like tagged and people were like, oh, look at my giant moose. The most common size for a moose was six to eight hundred pounds. Like moose, moose were not as big and they were not as common. They've really like over the last hundred years, the moose population in Maine has exploded and they've gotten bigger. I don't know why I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a moose expert, but I do know that I saw... Uh, the record moose in I think it was 2017 or 2018 that was tagged was um, 1600 pounds. So the oh, specter wow. moose is still a thousand pounds heavier than the biggest moose from just a couple years ago. That's amazing. Yes, and it's always a male. It's never a female. And um, the longer that this has sort of gone on, and the most recent sighting in 1999, it has started to spread. Uh, so I don't know, I suppose, the idea is that it's a singular moose that moves around. Maybe it's more than one. It's hard to say. But in the Hockamock Swamp, which is near-ish to Dartmouth, uh, it was seen in 1999. Okay. And it was not, that's one of the few that was not on a hunting trip. There was a gentleman out um, essentially birding, I believe. Oh. And, <laughs> uh, and saw this spectral moose walking through the swamp oh wow now the other piece of this puzzle is that there are a few like more spooky stories that have unearthed recently so it's one thing to feel like you've shot an animal that just then doesn't acknowledge it and moves along almost like some sort of spirit or specter animal and it's another to actually kill that animal and have it rise from the dead what dude <laughs> so in a mullen mullencus yes mullencus stream <laughs> in eastern central maine there were a bunch of friends that went hunting and killed a white moose sad face they thought it was cool <laughs> they killed a white moose and as you do when you're hunting, they slit its throat and hung it up in a tree overnight to bleed it out, Aww. thinking that they would skin and butcher it the next day. Because hauling a moose out is like even at 800 pounds. That's too fucking much moose. So a lot of times they're dressed in the woods. The next morning when they got up, not only had the moose vanished, was no longer hanging in the tree. There was no blood on the ground. There were no tracks in the area. It was simply gone. They were all freaked out, 
but gosh darn it, they were hunting and they hadn't tagged their moose yet, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, So they stayed. And that night, while they were out on the porch, a white moose walked up to the camp with its throat still slit, looked at them all, and walked away. Whoa. Metal, dude. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, spooky. The other uh, thought is that the specter moose is sometimes seen or often seen before something bad happens. So a gentleman from Franklin, Massachusetts in 2002 saw the specter moose uh, near where he lived. And later that month, his restaurant or the restaurant, it was unclear from the article, (laughs) but a restaurant in Franklin burned to the ground. Oh, wow. And so that gentleman believed that the specter moose was a bad omen. But whatever you believe, whether it's just a giant albino moose, whether it's a tall fishing tail, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger depending on who is recounting it. I think the coolest one is that it was killed, hung up, and then came back to haunt them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Specter Moose's Revenge. <laughs> Dude, that is an amazing B-horror movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of articles out there on the Specter Moose. You can go check it out for yourself. There is a book online that I really kind of want to get. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for cheese, but... It is referred to in this particular book, in the title of the book, as Old Moxie. Oh. And so I'm curious, listeners, if you are aware of Old Moxie being the actual, like, so colloquial name, regional name for the specter moose, I would love a confirmation. I would love to know. Because all I could find is that one book called, you know, like Hunting Old Moxie or something like that. And it was one person's encounter, mostly true. <laughs> of mostly uh, yeah, most, true, mostly true. <laughs> so that was important. Um, mostly true encounter of hunting the specter moose, but I couldn't find any other information on it being named specifically Old Moxie. Oh, okay. So I don't know. Maybe that was like that particular person's like family tale of like, oh yeah, and they named it Old Moxie or right, right. a particular town in Maine has named it Old Moxie because it shows up irregularly. But according to our good friend, Lauren Coleman, <laughs> and many other uh, online articles and the New York Times and that sort of stuff where I was able to dig up some information, uh, it doesn't have a known name other than Specter Moose or Ghost Moose. Oh, okay. All right. I still love you, Specter Moose. <laughs> I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> it always, uh, whenever there's a giant white animal that just sort of appears, it makes me think of Harry Potter, which I wish that wasn't the case. <laughs> but it makes me think of, like, Cool Spirit Guide. And, yeah, and right? It does make me mad and I'm sad. like, why would you want to kill <laughs> exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. That people's first thoughts were, you know, oh, I put five slugs in it yeah. and it didn't die, so it must be, a, like, a spiritual mount that yeah, on my fuck, wall. Fuck that. Like, oh, you guys are meanies. I'm not. A, I, I'm not personally uh, against hunting. I have a fridge full of moose meat, <laughs> but but yeah, the idea of like wanting to hunt and kill the biggest, coolest animal. It's like no, hunt for food, hunt for uses, hunt for fun if you want. I don't really care. But the idea of killing the rarest of the rare 
as a trophy, that saddens me. Yeah, that <laughs> that upsets me too. Hunting for sport also upsets me. I can I can get on board with hunting for food. Totally can can. People needs to eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what Spectre what Spectre moose meat. No, I don't I don't want to know what Spectre moose meat tastes like. Nobody should ever hunt, kill or find Spectre moose. I hope you live long and free. I do, too. I hope we get to meet you, and I hope I get to smooch your 2,500-pound lips. Oh, my God. It's, that's ginormous. I know. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> well, three different cryptids from old Massachusetts and new. I cannot wait to do another episode on cryptids already. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many more to do in this area. I'm sure we'll pick another area of the world to do cool cryptids of next, but before then... Engineer Dan, do we have a panda update? Oh, we've got panda updates, baby. Woo! <laughs> awesome. You want to talk about pandas? You know, I, I think, I wish that, uh, you know, pan, uh, you mentioned earlier, pandas used to be a cryptid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of things that we now are like, oh, yeah, whatever, common in a zoo were cryptids because before the world was really explored or people didn't, like, people weren't able to travel as accessibly as they can now. So... Yeah, it was like a big deal. Like people would be like, "Oh yeah, there's this, there's this, like black and white bear that lives in this bamboo forest, <laughs> but sometimes eats other animals." <laughs> well, it's native to China, and without and there was there's no video cameras, yada yada yada. There's no pictures, so it's word of mouth. Yeah. So yep. If you hadn't been to China, which would be rare if you weren't from China. Uh, people would call you crazy. Yep, and it would take years, uh, or take at least months, but sometimes most commonly years to be like, okay, I'm going on this ship that's going to India, and then it's going to China, and then you're going to hang out in China and maybe see a panda, and then come back. And by the time you come back, people are like, you're bananas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what's you know what's cool about pandas though. They're still around. They're no longer cryptids. And baby panda's doing great. Yay! Oh, God. So here's the fun fact that I found out in Panda Corner for this week for you, dear listener, and for you witches out there on the porch, uh, is that pandas, after they give birth, there's varying degrees of time before mama panda even needs to eat. Some pandas will eat, I don't know, a couple days after they give birth to a panda. And others will wait like three weeks before they eat again. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> wow. Crazy, right? So Mama Panda, in this instance, has left, has been leaving on, on the reg to go drink water. And I'm not jacked into the panda cam, but we all heard it last episode. If, it, <laughs> if, this is your, if this is your first episode, you'll hear it in the back catalog, dear listener. But Mama Panda recently... Upon leaving the den on the way back in, was like, and I'll have a little bit of bamboo. Aww. And, and she got a little, she got a little strain of bamboo, brought it back in, munched on it a little bit, put it down. The panda markings are coming in great. Mama's still being very nurturing. Everything's going fantastic on the panda cam. Oh, I love it. Do we have a a sex for the panda yet? Gender. Do- we are so close, Lindsay. Oh. <laughs> Here's why we don't have one yet. It's very difficult to tell the sex of a panda at this age without DNA testing. Oh, okay. But the fact that mom has started eating means that we're really close to baby panda giving enough time outside of the enclosure with her baby 
for people to rush in and really quick do like a DNA swab of the cheek. Oh, okay. Aww. All right. Totally. So we're, we're waiting for a real quick DNA swab, but right now we're just letting mom be an awesome mom because that's what mom is currently being, and mom has started eating, and Panda is healthy, and everybody, everything's going swimmingly. That's awesome. I can't imagine what it must be like to be a zookeeper or whatever, whatever their like fancy term is, but being like a caregiver, even in the like smallest capacity being like a zoo volunteer i don't know if they can still have those at this point but um, being somebody that's like in that zoo in any capacity that's like the the hype and excitement on a day-to-day basis and just i don't know it must be such a positive and fun atmosphere right now right it's probably the best job in the world <laughs> and, for the, and for those zoologists that are working with this panda right now they are they, the they are ecstatic because not only is there uh, the oldest panda to give birth on American soil has done so, but they're also being a fantastic mom, and the baby panda looks like it's gonna 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 be a happy, healthy baby panda. So yeah, good for those folks. Well, kudos to you, amazing <laughs> <laughs> our, our panda mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The, so that's the Smithsonian Zoo. If you guys want to watch the panda cam, like I've been watching every day, they don't update on the weekends traditionally or on holidays, kind of thing. But there's like 14 chapters of panda cam at this point that you can check out. <laughs> yes. So if you oh. just if you just Google giant panda Smithsonian Zoo or Washington Zoo, you'll see the panda cam that I've been following along with, and you can enjoy it without having to wait for my updates. <laughs> well, Engineer Dan, we appreciate your panda updates and can't wait for next week's. <laughs> uh, regarding updates, and it is still September, so if you are listening, and maybe this is your first time, maybe you were kind of mulling it over last week, maybe you've just been procrastinating like I do in most things. <laughs> But whatever the reason, if you are interested in getting a pussy package, getting some mail from Lindsay and I, then drop us a line. Follow us on Instagram at 5C2PPod or send us an email at 5C2PPod at Gmail with an address of yourself or somebody that you would like to send some mail to. We put our first round of packages in the mail last week and... Can't wait for all of you to get those, but we've got all kinds of cool stuff to send you. Little little bits and bobs from each of us. Maybe a tarot card reading. Maybe a cool, a cool surprise that you don't even know about. Drop us a line. Let us know. We're happy to support the USPS and send you a little something. Yeah. Who doesn't love mail? Everybody loves getting a little surprise in the mail. Everybody loves mail. Send yourself a treat. Send yourself a little surprise. Spoil yourself. It's worth it. Maybe you're a skeptic and you're like, I don't want to give you my address. Give us your mailing address. Give us give us your... Give, we'll mail your mail to your favorite hoagie shop. We don't care. <laughs> yeah, you could send this to anyone. We will address it to whatever you give us. But, uh, yeah. We'll look forward to getting some more some more mail requests, but until then, until next week, remember no pervs, no Nazis. Totally. Actual <laughs> <laughs> <Spectral> panda. <laughs> 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 <laughs>